This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Start off 2018 right with a trip to Breckenridge, Colorado for the annual Big Beers, Belgians, and Barley Wines Festival. January 4th through 6th, meet top brewers from around the country, enjoy world-class skiing and snowboarding, attend special beer dinners, and taste some strong, inventive, and warming beers with fellow enthusiasts. Check out bigbeersfestival.com for more information. Hi, this is John Hall. Sam Calagione is a celebrity, or better put, he's Santa Claus for beer drinkers. If you want to see grown men lose their shit at a brewery or a beer festival, just point out Sam and watch them approach with glee and reverence. He's the founder, of course, of Dogfish Head in Delaware. He's a television star, James Beard Award winner, an author, most recently, of a book with Jason and Todd Alstrom of Beer Advocate. And he is an advocate himself of the industry and a creative mind that many have tried to replicate, but few have been able to ever succeed. Sam, welcome to the broadcast. John, it's awesome beer. I guess it's now obvious we're going to be working blue. You got some four-letter words in there. Yeah, I, I figured I'm just going to start off early. Uh, I've hung out with you a few times. I know where it was going to go. I wanted to set the tone for you. Oh, well, those very kind words on behalf of everyone at Dogfish. We, we thank you for that, that recognition. <laughs> You're a New England guy, born and raised. Yeah, so actually I was born blocks from here. I was born in, uh, in Queens, but I got sick of it by the time I was... Uh, a year and a half old, and I moved out to Western Massachusetts. I told my parents, this is it, I'm out of here, I just want to live in the country. So yeah, my dad did his residency here in Manhattan at Mount Sinai. He's a tooth doctor. When I was one and a half, he moved out to uh, Western Mass, right on the cusp of Vermont. And right. uh, that's actually, I went to a high school there that my wife was a boarding student at. I was a day student, and that's when when and where Mariah and I met was out in Western Mass. And our company, the goofy name that our company has, actually comes from a jet of land off of Booth Bay Harbor called Dogfish Head, where my family had a, a cabin uh, uh, that we, we would hang out at in the summer. But you're synonymous now with Delaware. I mean, you you guys were the first... Brewery in the first state. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean... First, since Prohibition. Since Prohibition. Yeah, yeah, we have yeah, to do, yeah, that, yeah, do, yeah. That, do that caveat. Yeah. Um, but you also spent time here after high school uh, and before the brewery uh, opening in 95. You spent yeah. time here in the city. Yeah. What were you doing here back So then? the day I graduated from college, I, I got an English degree at Muhlenberg College down the road from here in Allentown, PA. And the day after I graduated, I came up here with aspirations of being a writer or a professor. And I started taking courses in the MFA program, not fully enrolled, but courses at Columbia in their MFA program. And to pay my bills, I worked as a bartender and waiter at a sort of first-generation craft beer bar on the Upper West Side called Nacho Mama's Burritos, where I <laughs> fell in love with really good beer for the first time and within weeks started homebrewing and kind of saw the writing on the wall in those classes that I was a good writer, but I, I wasn't as world-class as some of the folks in that Columbia school. So I was like, well, maybe I can take my love uh, for of creative writing and storytelling and transfer it into opening a brewery and write recipes that are 
uh, my creative outlet, and that's kind of the road, the road I went down. I mean, that's a huge jump, though, to go from writing, especially the, the recipes that you're known for or that you were celebrated for uh, early on with sort of these these whacked out. Uh, uh, I often think about uh, the, the South Park episode where they're mimicking the Simpsons, and they kept saying, Simpsons did it, Simpsons did it. Every time somebody does something weird these days with 6,000 breweries operating in the country, it's sort of, oh, Sam did it uh, already. Because, but so how do you make the jump, though, from an MFA program or creative writing to coming up with recipes where you're using wood that nobody's used before or you're pitching moon dust into things? I it, it, Connect those dots because it does. I, I can't see the clear path. Yeah, I would say, you know, for the catalyst for, for me that remains was really two things. Finding the concept of the Rheinheitskabo, which I didn't know, but I'm sure your listeners uh, know that's the Bavarian Beer Purity Act where they made it illegal to make anything, you know, make a beer with anything commercially other than water, hops, and barley. Uh, and yeast was kind of a given. And uh, essentially within centuries, the rest of the world commercially either bowed down or referenced the Ryan Heitzkabot as beer got homogenized. So finding about that, finding out about that law when I was doing my research here at New York City Public Library, writing my business plan as a young home brewer, I was like, "Holy shit, that's it! That's my white whale! That's what I'm going to stand up against!" And I committed to, in my business plan, committed to brewing the majority of our beers outside the Rhine Heights Cabot. That was true when we were the smallest brewery in the country, and it's still true today. I realized, you know, today it doesn't seem like such a crazy business concept but back then we were pretty much alone uh and not considered cool and we'd get made fun of for beers like raison d'etre with raisins and chicken. who was making fun of you back then i would go to like stouds beer fest and uh, you know and and ed and carol are dear friends but if you went to stouds beer fest or a beer dinner at brick skeller in 1995 and 96 the storied dc sort of first year beer mecca and I, I remember doing a 96, a wheeling a Hoff Stevens keg of Aprahop into the Brick Skeller for a Michael Jackson tasting where every brewer would get up and talk about a beer and talking about Aprahop and how well the, uh, the, 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 the pureed apricots magnified the, the, the fruitiness of the Northwest hops and sitting down as a proud 25-year-old in my seat and the next brewer got up and said, I believe fruit belongs in your salad, not in your beer. And everyone clapped and I was like, oh shit, what have I, what have I got myself into here? But it's so different now. I mean, I, I want to come back to, to some of these things, but you, you talk to 21-year-olds or let's just say 25-year-olds today, mm-hmm. and they they don't have any sort of appreciation, it seems, uh, I'm painting with a very broad brush, yeah, yeah. obviously, but for the beers that Ed and Carol make at Stouts or, yeah. you know, Sierra Nevada seen as passe or crisp, yeah. clean lagers are, you know, my dad drank that. It, 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 there's sort of been this flip mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. the beers that you were making back then being the redheaded stepchild and now some of those beers being treated the same way by the young customers. Yeah. Well, I mean, I love how tumultuous and dynamic the beer industry is for trends because at the same moment, session sours are being celebrated. There's a, you know, renaissance of crisp poppy pilsners. So I'm hopeful for a universe where we can all be beer geeks and not beer snobs. And if a beer is just great on its own merits, whether it's done super traditionally or super adventurously, it gets its opportunity to see its day in the marketplace. Um, So I'm pretty agnostic about should beers be extreme beers or should beers be traditional beers uh i just think great beers 
is what we're all shooting for. Because so there's a joke that I used to do with uh, uh, Lou Bryson, who's a, 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 I love a Lou. yeah, Lou has a great laugh. So to, so making him laugh is always a cathartic thing. You can't do it on mic though because it blows out the mics. Uh, it, you can hear it four states away when when Bryson laughs. Yeah. But uh, so Bryson's a great a uh, great writer. He's written several books. Yeah. He's, he's worked for magazines. Um, and when I was coming up uh, as a writer. He and I would trade back uh, back and forth sources or ideas. Or I, I, he's very much been a mentor to me. Mm-hmm. And um, I once said, uh, "How can I thank you?" And he said, "Well, let me send you some homebrew that somebody sent me for somebody who wants to be the next Sam Kendall Jones." And it was like a really backhanded compliment because I was going to get exploding bottles <laughs> or you know mace in a jar or some sort of some sort of thing. And it you know it, it, among certain circles, it's what has Sam wrought. Um, through that, though, I think what everybody keeps forgetting, because Bryson and I, we'd be out and, and I'd be out and I'd talk to people and, oh, I, I'm going to open up a brewery, somebody would tell us. And we'd say, okay, like, what do you want to do? Oh, I'm going to be the next dogfish head. And we'd say, so you're going to make two, three really good IPAs. And they'd look at us kind of blankly. And it's like, well, what, what do you think keeps the lights on? And it was always 6090 and India Brown, right? I mean, that's, that's what you built this brewery on. I'd say to some degree we found a white space. The irony is, you know, we've always made the majority of beers outside our Ryan Heights about outside the Ryan Heights about. Um, but today, almost you know, half of our sales or over half, just over half our sales are are IPAs. That said, they're very unique culinary inspired IPAs because we did come up with that concept of continual hopping uh, that really makes them you know you know profoundly hoppy without being crushingly bitter so I do think they still have the culinary DNA in them that makes dogfish head special and and is on point in terms of being off-centered and and brand appropriate but you're right uh, you can be pretty damn adventurous within the Ryan Heights about uh, as well as bringing culinary ingredients into the process you guys opened in 95, which seems impossibly long ago. But by the time you came on, the other breweries had sort of forged their own path. And Sierra Nevada, especially with Pale Ale, I think paved the way for breweries to have uh, a hoppy flagship or a hoppy portfolio yeah. uh, in a way that you couldn't have had had you opened up even probably five five years earlier. Yeah. Um, if you had opened up five years earlier, what direction do you think you might have gone in? The bankruptcy direction, probably. <laughs> <laughs> this is seriously. Like so many others who followed you down this rabbit hole. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, as everyone, you know, smart pundits and analysts recognize, we're definitely on the precipice of a shakeout moment, but it shouldn't be, a, a, you know, recognized as a catastrophic thing it's a healthy economic darwinism sort of thing and it is a, it, we're, we're now just repeating a what i see as a 20-year cycle it's a 20-year market correction not, not a shakeout you know in the early 80s you had uh you know jack mcauliffe at new albion his business model was not sustainable he quietly went out of business but deserves to be recognized as a pioneer 100 percent. ken grossman talked to him got advice and jack's like don't open as small as i do do draft in bottles don't just do one thing literally helped him figure out from his mistakes how to help the next guy 
Um, and then that happened again 20 years later in the late 90s as we, you and I were in the industry yeah. and watched that that shakeout and live, live through that one. No, I was one. like 14, but yeah. That's you were, that's yeah, true. That's, uh, um, also, and, still covering the industry, but yeah, 14. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> a child prodigy <laughs> beer journalist for sure. Now, my parents just, it was cheaper than daycare, so... <laughs> And now here we go are. Go to the brewery hall. 20 years yeah. later yeah, on that precipice, <laughs> precipice again. And it's not a bad thing. The consumer's going to decide. What I love about this moment in the industry, and I'll talk about this on this stage tomorrow, I hope, is that at this moment, because of the great leveler and connector that the internet is, the decision of... Uh, you know the, the 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 filter of who's going to make it through this shakeout is going to have nothing to do with scale or the town that your brewery's in. It's going to have everything to do with merit, as defined by the consumer, and how, who's firing on all three cylinders of quality, consistency, and being well differentiated. It has nothing to do with scale. You can fire on all three of those cylinders and just be a little tasting room brewery, or you can aspire to be a coast-to-coast brewery like Dogfish or Sierra Stone and thrive on, on all three of those cylinders. But the consumer's too smart and too well-connected and too educated right now to only put up, to put up with breweries that are only firing on one or two of those cylinders. What strikes me as interesting, that, and, and we should point out that we are in New York City. We're in a very small hotel room. You're here for the Beer Marketers Insights mm-hmm. Conference. If mm-hmm. uh, uh, you're interested in the business mm-hmm. of beer, you should check out yep. BMI. I think they, they, they do great coverage. And thanks yep. to Chris Shepard for letting us uh, sit on his bed yep. and, and record this podcast. Yeah, especially without pants on. That was really <laughs> nice of him. I told you you should keep them on, but you insisted. Um, And then you took mine off, which was weird. You can tell this Uh, is a high thread count. (laughs) This is a high thread count duvet. It's the only way to figure out if it's Egyptian cotton. Um, (laughs) The consumers get it, I think, for the most part. Uh, And I agree with you on those three cylinders. But for a long time, we've been hearing, and, and you've been a very prominent member of the Brewers Association board, uh, somebody who uh, new brewers look to for inspiration, look to for guidance, look to for, well, how do we do this not only with creative recipes, but how do we uh, start small and grow to multi-state distribution and restaurants and hotels and everything else that, that, that you have. And for a long time, I know in meetings and at conferences, you and the BA and smart people in this industry have been harping on this, saying, you have to do these things. And it's amazing to me that brewers haven't gotten that. And so a lot of the closures that we will see and that we are already starting to see are are Mm self-inflicted. How does that, though, impact your brewery how does if somebody goes to a brewery down the street from from where your brewery is in in delaware or you know travels 20 miles away to a to a brewery in delaware uh, and has a bad pint how does something like that affect you that's a great i think that's the existential question uh for our industry and how well uh you know um most breweries are going to do in the next two years. I really think we're mostly looking at about a two-year. I think 2018 is going to be the year of of scary discounting, and 2019 is going to be the year of some bankrupt breweries. Um, uh, I would say one challenge is that certain business models, like that 
direct-to-consumer, tasting-room-oriented business model that didn't really exist when you, you know you and I were coming up in the industry. Yeah, it's both awesome in that it can be this amazing immediate touch point in every neighborhood to take neophyte beer drinkers to full-on craft, you know, educated evangelists that tell their neighbors about what's good and what's not. But it can also be challenging because that business model has an inherently disproportionate high per ounce profitability opportunity because every ounce by the pint is being sold direct to the consumer bypassing the the retailer and distributor tier um, which means that the, some pretty mediocre beer can still be pretty profitable for a tiny room with a tasting t- tiny brewery with a tasting room but again the consumer needs to get loud about which breweries in their neighborhood are, are, are brewing with quality consistency and, and well differentiated beer and picket the mofos who aren't and not support those. But I just feel like, the, the, because right now little breweries and tasting rooms are hot shit, there's going to be a lot of forgiveness because, oh, it's my lo- most local brewery. And local does not mean good. We know that. And we got to start talking more loudly about there's going to be awesome little local breweries that are making quality stuff. And let's not support those that, that, are, that are not making quality stuff. If a smaller brewer, and I mean, again, with 6,000 in the in the U.S. right now, and, and you're certainly in the top 50, you guys are in the top 25, aren't you? I think so. I don't know. Okay. So there's more behind you guys than there are above you guys, let's mm-hmm. say. Mm-hmm. So to the one or 2,000 barrel breweries that are out there these days who have this, um, for somebody with 22 years of experience, mm-hmm. what's the... Is there one piece of advice that you can give them right now to avoid having a really shitty 2018? Yeah, well, that's a great question, John. That's why I'm here. <laughs> you know, I would say... <laughs> You're, I, like, surprised that I'm asking questions. This questions. is what I do for a living. Yeah. <laughs> no, but that... Cause I, I, I also, about. humility is what I do. Yeah. And drink. Uh, yes. Yeah. Um, three things. Those are my the, three those hallmarks. Three fi- yeah, those, those are my well, three Well, you're firing on all three cylinders tonight, John. <laughs> you are. Um, I would say, I, I wrote a book called Brewing Up a Business about all the things that we learned from that we did wrong at Dogfish. And I'm lucky enough that a lot of folks thinking about getting an industry read that book, among others, yeah. and reach out to me and ask me some questions like the one you just asked. And I, w- I always say, well, if you, have, if you have aspirations of distributing outside your state, start talking to your in-state distributors, whether or not you choose to self-distribute to start with or not. And I think it's awesome that most states do allow small breweries to to self-distribute. I always say, make sure if you plan to distribute in a bunch of states, talk to distributors first about what their definition of a strong craft brand versus a weak craft brand is. And I also think the the three-tier system's so uh, profoundly important and effective to help small guys get to market. If you look at the countries where there isn't a three-tier s- system, the world's biggest conglomerates are disproportionately strong in market share than somewhere here where the three-tier lets small guys get to market. But then I also say start small. Don't build an 80-barrel brew house and immediately sign up with five states for distribution because right now there's a lot of breweries that are in this awkward middle spot. They're, they're too big 
to recede to their home few states and, and survive mostly by being deep and local, but they're too small to afford the cost of building out a big sales force or a, a true national sales and market, marketing integrated plan. So they're in this awkward middle space where they are going down the distributor's totem pole of priority brands just by virtue of their inability to be you know, bring expected resources to the table. So I always say don't start so big that you can't retract back to a home market or in a deep local penetration thing because we don't know what's on on the horizon for how competitive out-of-state distribution is going to get. And you had to do that a few years ago. You had to pull out of states, I think, in the Midwest, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we demand, we, you know, got, we're very lucky where we had double-digit growth for, I think, 18 years in a row. And at one point, the surge was so great that we were faced with either contract brewing. I had great friends like Jim Cook who called and said, hey, Sam, I'm down visiting you know, Texas and your beer's out of stock everywhere. Do you want to maybe talk about you know, making 60 Minute in one of our facilities to get you through this crunch? I mean, think how kind-hearted that is. And, well, uh, he would have charged you for well, it. Oh, he would have charged yeah. us, but he did but, it, but it's nice he made the call, yeah. <laughs> and uh, MRI and I talked about it. And we're like, no, let's stay committed to making every ounce of our beer ourselves and not contract brew. And we knew we weren't going to get our capacity, new capacity online for a year and a half or two years. So we'd made the hard call and shut down some states to make sure the states in the mid-Atlantic would not run out of beer. And now here we are. You know, the karma is so uh, palpable because here we are in a year when crafts up five overall beers up down about one. And in our home market of Philly, we're up 19 percent in Baltimore, up 23. Our biggest distributor, Hunter, is up 21 and our home state distributor, Delaware, Little Delaware, is up 24 percent. And and so we have this loyalty because we made those hard decisions. And we know that as competitive as it is, if you aren't strong in your own backyard you should you're in trouble are you seeing those rises uh through local sales is that coming through the established brands or is that coming through sequence being in cans or is that coming through the the newest thing that you guys are doing like is is new rare local uh so rare i guess and new uh is that fueling a lot of the growth these days i'd say um by volume, if we're up 20%-ish this year, uh, I know this exactly, actually. I think it, uh, um, I know it's 30% new geography where our growth's coming from and 70% are, are legacy longtime distributors. Um, I know that Flesh and Blood and Sequential are double where we thought they would be, but 60 Minutes also uh, ahead of where we thought it would be. 90 minute of our core beers and Namaste is ahead of where we thought it would be in distribution. 90 is the only one that's a little bit behind where we thought it would be. And I think, as you know, millennial drinking uh, habits, being a young millennial yourself. Yeah, that's that's how everybody <laughs> describes me. Yeah. Uh, that that session abilities important, cans are important. So ni- 90 minute, but you can have imperial IPAs that grow fast right now. And I think, you know, a lot of my homies in, in New England from, you know, Sean Lawson's and uh, you know, the good folks at The Alchemist. And there's a lot of breweries doing really nice big IPAs, but they tend to be in can, four-pack cans now. So we, we are, we're switching that format for 90 minute to get it into the cans. But that was a long way of saying it's a combination of our legacy brands that are delivering growth like 60 Minute and Namaste and brands that didn't exist even 20 months ago uh, in terms of distribution. They were local to our pubs, Sequential and Flesh and Blood. So it's both. 
I'd be failing our listeners if I didn't ask the question that all of them want to know. How soon will it be before we have 120 in cans? Mm, yes. Well, we've been going around, uh, you know, the undersides of uh, sporting venues and trying to recycle those small Red Bull cans mm-hmm. uh, and fill them with uh, 120 that were can conditioning. Um, so perhaps that's that's still in the test test markets. Yeah, no, I, I you're robbing us. 19.2 ounce cans is where we want to be with uh, with 120. <laughs> that sounds blissfully come on you're like the king you're like the king of youtube i like a crowler of 120 uh why hasn't that happened yet because if you do it then jim will one-up you with utopias and cans and then i'm pretty sure the world just goes into the sun uh uh, yeah no 120 will we love we love us some 120 but we do believe that one will stay in the bottle form 12 ounce bottle format for years to come and we tell people if you're opening a vintage 120 share it oh sure 12 ounces of that throw throw six ounces each in in a in a uh, in a wine glass and share that yeah i have it once a year and then i give up drinking for a month um (laughs) so you wrote the book you you were talking before and i want to get to your new book but you wrote the book um on opening up breweries and, and planning for success uh, a, a while back. Mm-hmm. I, there hasn't been an updated edition in... A bunch of years. Right. Yeah, what have you learned since then that you want to put in that book? If I were to now update... Yeah, if you were going to do it right now. My whole theory of quality, consistency, and being well differentiated and don't think about scale, think about doing those three things fast is, would probably be the first and the last chapter of that book yeah and you know don't get out over your skis with debt that's when you start making some desperate decisions that uh can erode uh your brand health um would be another uh you know thing that i would uh recommend and uh and and recognize if you want to distribute millennials like cans and i learned that one a little bit late (laughs) yeah um and by the way, millennials now are outnumber us Gen Xers or older folks in terms of their beer buying scale and volume. So you've got to be thinking about that younger drinker if you're opening a brewery today. Do you risk, though, alienating your older drinkers with that? Because mm-hmm. um, I often walk into a bar, I mean, just just or, or a package store and I'm overwhelmed by choice. And I and I cover the, the beer industry and it's my job to know these things. I'm overwhelmed by choice. And I often feel that at 38, that I'm not quite as, uh, I'm not the demographic that, you know, people are shooting for anymore. And that seems weird uh, uh, to me. Do you worry about balancing the newer market coming in versus the people who have been around with you for a long time? Or is there a bridge that you can gap? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, question where I think that's where that's <laughs> I think that's where and I don't blame distributors mm-hmm. for having anxiety about and, and retailers you and can s- if you want to especially no I don't blame di- distributors retailers uh, you know particularly on premise for having anxiety about how much beer is being sold through ta- ta- tasting rooms I know we're yeah. gonna have to talk about that question uh, and uh, but I'll I will say it's a great uh, it's a great resource for the whole beer industry to have conversations with all different people of all different ages and 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 hone messages that can uh, 
can appeal to all demographics, but then recognize there are moments when messages in certain recipes, it's okay for them to appeal to a more uh, limited demographic. So, you know, a beer like we were just talking about, 120, we know that's never going to be stacked in Costco. Uh, um, but a beer like Sequential, having the conversations where we thought when I developed that, it was, hey, I'm getting kind of old, my metabolism slowing down, I got like an everything bagel around my waist, I got to stop drinking so much ninety and Indian brown, I want to innovate a lower calorie beer that's still intensely flavorful and has all this, you know, German sour DNA, but our own culinary sea salt and black lime. And I, in, in, as I described to our leadership team, and they do a good job of saying, all right, Sam, of your five ideas this year, this one's bullshit, that's stupid, that's crap, but that one there, explain that one more, and they help tease it out and make it better. And Sequential first, they're like, a Goza? Who the hell's going to drink a Goza on the beach? And I'm like, no, it goes. It's going to be a Goza, Berliner Weiss, and a Kolsch mashed up with these things. And as we vetted that t t together, we knew, let's try to make this thing appeal um, you know, not just to beer geeks, but make it really low in bitterness. And let's see if we can get Pinot Gris drinkers into this and, and uh, margarita drinkers. And that's what we used our tasting room and our brew pubs for, to hone that message of how do we do this beer and not just talk to beer geeks, um, which we love. Uh, beer geeks, a term of endearment. That is us. But we wanted a broader opportunity with that beer than something like 120. How long a process was it in your tasting room? Because down in Rehoboth, and I know you just tore the old place down and the new place is, yeah, up. is now up. And you have a, another restaurant Just in Rehoboth, and then you have the uh, tasting room in Milton, right? And then the inn as yep, well, where Lewis. you can't buy beer. You can't buy beer, but I yeah. was in front of ninety beer beer lovers yesterday. We had our analog go go music and beer fest, and we mm. we hosted a, a fireside chat. Which I, if I'm at home every Saturday, I do that fireside chat at our inn, and that's the best focus group because people brought their own beer that they paid for so they're going to tell you the truth uh, about what they're what they're thinking how long a process is it though for you guys these days to the, versus how it was in the beginning because yeah. in the beginning if you wanted to just throw something in a randall or to throw out 100 kegs of a, an experimental beer right i mean you you could do it yep. back then yeah. I mean, but now yeah. with multi-state distribution yeah. and a huge you know not even a, a huge power system but just a, a, a huge system itself and yep. having people that you have to answer to or at least present to yep. as well how long a process is it compared to yeah. the old days yeah uh it is the, to do it right for a brewery of our scale, uh, I think it's a little over a year is what you really need to do it right. From wow. test batches in your facility, honing the, the recipe, doing them small enough so you can just change one variable with every test brew, uh, getting the feedback from consumers and your coworkers, uh, triangulating people that experienced it and were willing to talk to you about it in your own buildings versus those talking about it untapped and be your advocate and looking at all that stuff and then iterating it towards the marketplace. It should be, um, I, for us, it's uh, a little over a year. And that's what that's why we have a five gallon or a 12 gallon brewery, a five barrel brewery, a seven barrel brewery, a 100 barrel brewery, a 200 barrel brewery, because we would not be as off-centered and innovative if every time we did a test batch, it had to even be on the seven barrel. So we got, we can finger paint, you know, blissfully with like a little giggling kindergarten uh, person with just creativity and no thoughts of cost of goods on a five barrel system, throw those into a tasting room while we're doing fine art with precision on our 200 barrel system for yeah. distribution. Because it, you know, shit's getting real out there. Distributors and retailers 
you got to respect their limited resources so that when you bring something out nationally, it's proven and the, the, the story that you're ready to tell about it is articulate and well amplified and well differentiated. You, the days of just throwing shit out there. Like I remember we did a beer called Au Courant uh, uh, made with black currants yeah. like 10 or 12 years ago. And I was giving a distributor a, a tour as it was coming off the bottling line. And, uh, and they're like, how did, well, tell me about that beer. How did, I gave them the recipe. I'm like, well, how does it taste? I'm like, I don't know. You know, I thought of the recipe and I've never tried it, but we made 100 barrels of it and we're going to run off 1,000 cases. Those days are over where you make something for distribution and you, you haven't honed it and you just throw it out there. Um, and, uh, yeah, we don't take risks like that anymore. You just used the phrase shit scanning real. How do you quantify that? Like, what is... When 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 you say that yeah. uh, about the beer marketplace yeah. these days, like what what's the image that pops in your mind? What's the because yeah. because shit's getting real is almost I, I I hear that and I think of like a, a knot in the pit of my stomach. Yeah. Um. What is that? Not for you. What is that? Yeah. What what is the real? What is the shit? Uh, it is that if you're opening a brewery to have fun or to be cool but you don't care about quality and consistency or coming up with your own stuff if you're just going to copy other people, don't do it because the competitive landscape is not ready or tolerant for uh, hobbyists that aren't going to come correct with all that stuff, especially if you aspire to enter your beers into third-party retailers or distributors, warehouses, and stores, because then you're competing against those of us that are maniacally passionate about quality, consistency, and well-differentiated, and we don't want you next to us. And in the same sentence, I will say, I'm super psyched that there's going to be hundreds of breweries that don't exist today that 10 years from now, I'm going to be high-fiving because they came into the industry with quality, consistency, and being well-differentiated, and they're going to keep us vibrant and colorful. So by no means am I saying don't open a brewery. I'm just saying shit's getting real, and if you're going to open one, respect the 6,000 elders who are trying every day to do all those things as well as they can. Earlier, you mentioned the sort of the feedback that you get uh, and you mentioned specifically untapped and you mentioned beer advocate you did not mention rate beer and you were very vocal rate beer was uh, acquired it has investment from uh, ZX Ventures which is an arm of uh, Anheuser-Busch InBev which is uh, I'm sure to the listeners of this podcast uh, considered the great Satan uh, as, as it were Um you sent them a letter saying, take us down. And you cited the Society of Professional Journalists, which uh, I uh, applauded you for, although it also made me question, is rate beer actually journalism, which I don't know uh, if it is. Yeah. Is that still a fight you guys are fighting? Yeah, and I want to throw that back on you and get your perspective on that. Because, right. like, uh, you know, we're still fighting it. And, the, and the, the challenge is the founder's a nice guy, and he answers my emails. Joe Tucker, yeah. He is a nice guy. And I don't, I don't, uh, just as there's really nice people uh, that, that started breweries that sold out to a, uh, for, you know, a massive conglomerate, there's some great people that are doing that. And I don't. I don't begrudge them when they monetize their lives' work. What I find really challenging, though, and I what I really feel um, 
um, you know, pushes me to, to take the risk of standing up against some of what's happening is when there is that massive lack of authenticity and massive, massive lack of, of transparency. And, and, you know, when we sent that letter and saying, look, rape beer can no longer be seen as a, a unbiased place for beer information to be shared. Um, and we want out. It was pro- profoundly disturbing and ir- ironic that when we tried they said, well, no, no, Sam, you can't uh, remove your brands because this is a, a consumer generated space. And, you know, we said, uh, well, we're still going to try. But in the interim, you, there's an area when you go to that, that website that you're, the brewery's allowed to say something about their brewery, like a landing page sure, or, yeah. or whatever it'd be called on their website. So we were like, all right, well, for now, as we're trying to navigate this, we're at least going to put up on that website how we feel. And we went to that landing thing on Rate Beer and we're like, hey, Dogfish Head, just so you know, uh, no longer endorses this this place because we feel it's no longer unbiased and it's a uh, 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 information gathering hub for the world's biggest brewing conglomerate uh, that is invested in it monetarily and profits from it now. Um, so that's how we feel about it. And by the next day, what we wrote was taken off that website. And so how consumer generated and fair is the information shared on that if they are editing it to the extent that that they are so it's still it's really troubling to me and, and that sort of thing or them maybe i buy, buying one of the world's biggest home brewing uh northern brewer yeah, supply that's trouble or having a piece of pico or having a i mean there, there there's a lot of things that they're so, doing so as a journalist yeah what what do you think about that predicament i'm glad i'm not alone in it like i email with jean who owns cantillon yep. i email with logan who owns uh beaver town in london there's a lot of us that think this is uh, this is not not right. I can't speak to uh, Joe's business, mm-hmm. Joe Tucker's business. However, uh, I don't think it was handled the right way. Mm-hmm. I think he was forced into uh, announcing it um, through another uh, AB company or somebody who works AB, for another AB company, company yeah. um, as well. Good Beer Hunting is not affiliated with uh, AB, but employees of Good Beer Hunting are affiliated with AB. I should, I need to clarify that. Yeah. Um, the fact that they won't let you, as the brewery, uh, say what you want to on your own landing page, which they had in the past, mm-hmm. yeah, that's that's a shitty thing. Yeah. Um, unbiased reviews on that site, yeah. not so much, yeah. because I think a lot of the time the user-generated content is, I'm going to give this Kolsch one star because I don't like Kolsch and it doesn't have enough hops. Or, you know, this 60 minute isn't nearly uh, stout enough for me and all I drink is stout. So I, I I don't necessarily think a lot of the stuff that shows up on the unbiased stuff. I think that had AB tried to come in uh, during my time at All About Beer or now at Craft Beer and Brewing and they tried to uh, put influence on our tasters who taste blind at both places, uh, that would have been a lot different. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think ultimately it comes down to do you want to listen to experts who care about beer and will judge everything accordingly. I've been on the record by saying I don't necessarily care for triples, Mm -hmm. but I also know that if I have to judge them in beer competition, I know what to look for for, and I can judge them accordingly. I'm not going to knock something down because of my personal preference. And even Beer Advocate and Untapped are that way as well, where you see one star or one bottle cap Mm -hmm. or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I know the brothers keep changing their algorithms, Mm -hmm. you know, as well. That said, it's troubling 
as a as a journalist that there are things that are perceived as journalism. Yep. Um, and it, it's not only Rate Beer, but it's also uh, October, uh, mm-hmm. their site that they have a piece of. Mm-hmm. It's also the Beer Necessities, the thing that they have a piece of that are used as tools for yep. or tools to help uh, their, you know, strategic initiatives. <laughs> Maximizing quarterly shareholder value. There's a lot I want to get to you uh, uh, to you with. Um, early on, you guys called yourself. What was the original name of the brewery? Um, Lou Reed's Transvestite Lover. Oh, sure. Well, that's also yeah. Didn't, that's, it wasn't snappy, so we, was, we focus grouped the crap out of that yeah. one. Uh, what was the original name of the brewery? Dogfish Head, Brewings and Eats, because it was okay. all in one building. But yeah. then you you were one of the first who added craft to it. So that I think we were the first. Yeah. yeah, so in 95, we opened as Dogfish Head, Brewings and Eats as a brew pub. And then in 96, I built a two-head with a buddy of mine, hand-bottling line, and then we jumped up from a 12-gallon to a five-barrel brewery. And when we, and so in 96, when we started bottling and distributing, we changed our name to Dogfish Head Craft Brewery. And... We, I think, are registered as the TTB as the first commercial brewery to have the word craft in our name because in that era, it was called microbreweries. There were brew pubs, which were breweries that sold and made the majority of beer inside their building, and there were microbreweries, which were breweries of any size, uh, American breweries of any size that sold the majority of the beer outside of the building. Uh, understanding the magazine that I work for and the podcast that you're all listening to, um, and and with apologies to the people who sign my paychecks, uh, I've been on the record by saying that the word craft has become meaningless. Oh, snap. Um and in a lot of ways, it has because it's been co-opted by the very big guys that we were talking about before. And the new word has become independent. Uh, Trogues a few years back, uh, two years back, uh, rebranded and became Trogues Independent Brewing uh, and all of their labeling stuff. I, I don't imagine that you're going to do the same. But you've been a very big proponent of the word independent. And it's easy to say we're independent. We're not owned by the big guys. We're small, independent. Uh, you know, like we're you know, you can meet the people who own the brewery. It's mm-hmm. not always that black and white, mm-hmm. uh, as as we know through various percentages of ownership. How do you? What's the next level of independent? Like, how, how, like you can say, oh, we're independent. That we're not AB or Heineken or. Carlsberg, Miller Coors, whatever. So that's the first layer of independent. What's the second layer of independent? Um, I really am uh, a firm believer in the Brewers Association's definition of independent. I realize that anytime a line, do they have a definition of independent? They have a well, definition of craft, craft brewer. Brewery. I yeah. should say craft brewery, but for me. Independent stands for all three prongs of their, the BA definition, which is small, independent, traditional. Small meaning less than six million barrels, which sounds massive, but it represents like two or three percent of America mark, beer market share. Uh, independent meaning less than 25% owned by a brewery over 6 million barrels. And traditional is kind of the past. As long as you're making your beer with natural ingredients, you, you kind of fit under that part. But, you know, I don't think, and we can debate this, the, the, indi- the independent, the, 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 the irrelevance of craft, I think should be debated because it's only, or it's only lost its meaning if we let it right now. And they're the world's biggest breweries want to commodify and dilute craft, and we just can't let them. And so, I mean, if you just hyphenate the word 
craft with indie in front of it, I think you're back to having a provocative reason to keep the word craft in the dialogue about beer. And so indie craft for me is what I say instead of just craft, but I'm hopeful in five or 10 years, we can take the indie off the front of it because the consumer has absorbed that indie subconsciously into what the true definition of craft brewery is. I haven't heard somebody say that before. Is that going to be the big push going forward of indie hyphen craft? No, um, I've 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 submitted my label approval to the TTB for Have indie you? hyphen craft, all spelt out. Uh, but no, no, I, I I always say it, it has nothing to do. I'm no longer on the board of the Brewers Association. Okay. I'm not I, asking I, you to I'm, speak for them. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm on the marketing subcommittee and uh, a couple of subcommittees. But uh, I loved being chairman of the board of the Brewers Association. I loved the craft versus crafty messaging that we did in the era when I was the chairman. And and, and I believe you're the one. Yeah. And, and I believe <laughs> the the messaging that that great group of leaders doing now around uh, getting that seal out to consumers and breweries is meaningful work and i think that that indie craft is at the the concept of indie craft if not the exact wording i'm talking about is at the center of this 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 moment where we're 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 uh, demanding uh, more attention on on transparency and authenticity, and that's not to say if a consumer knows who made that beer and they don't give a shit that a massive brewery made that beer that's being marketed as if it came from a little indie brewery. God bless them. Buy that four ninety nine six pack of of you know factory made IPA. Um, but the problem is right now that consumer doesn't know who who really made each beer. Beer. So that's all we're trying to get get in front of the consumer. You mentioned uh, putting in TTB labels, uh, which I know was a joke, but uh, does the TTB really pay attention to your labels now more so than others based on golden showers? Uh, yeah, that, that was one that really slipped through my the, the, the most important filter in my life, which is my wife. Uh, but I, she didn't know I submitted that to the TTB. And, and then she I think she was having one of our children at the time. Uh-huh. And then she came into work and she's like, what the F? We, we came up with a beer called Golden Shower. She's like, you're a loser, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> I was in the hospital. And you're, not, yeah, this I'm is, birthing yeah. our kid and you're yeah. coming out. With so I was like, sorry, honey. And we changed the name to, uh, we changed the name of the beer. Uh, and uh, And then as soon as we abandoned it, all these other breweries that were made nameless came out with all these other inappropriate sexual innuendo names. And I was like, that's right, the women are smarter. I, I should have listened to Mariah at the beginning on that one. We're getting towards the end. Tell tell me about the new book. I'm going to ask you one first, though. All right, sure. So that's not how this usually works, but we, you know, we, but it's you, and I've had a couple of beers, so <laughs> like, what the hell? So we talk. I, I talk about. I mean, pul- I'll come on your podcast and answer <laughs> questions, but sure, like, I will you know, everybody gets one. So all of you brewers listening who are after Sam, everybody gets one, one question yeah. to John. Um, uh, we talked about quality consistency and being well differentiated. Mm-hmm. I am familiar and a fan of. Uh, craft beer and and brewing. Thanks. How do you, how do you guys? If it, how would you summarize how you differentiate yourselves as a publication in the world of beer journalism? You know, I I think that we look at everybody who is out there right now. We want to find people who are uh, being true to the traditions of beer, but also pushing the envelope. Uh, somebody who is 
and it doesn't matter age. It doesn't matter how long you've been around. Uh, because or how can, big of a beer geek you are. Yeah, exactly. Because I think you can walk into, you can find exciting things. I, as a journalist, I, I find very exciting things going into stouts uh, these days and going into some of these breweries that have been around for 20, you know, 30 years. I mean, Sam Adams, you were talking about Jim before. They have a whole pilot system run by Megan Parisi uh, up at the, the Boston. Cambridge. Yeah, exactly. Um, and she was at Harvard's and a whole bunch of other places. She's a great brewer. Yes, she and she's making these one barrel batches uh, at the Jamaica Plain Brewery that maybe we'll never see the light of day, uh, but it shows innovation and it shows there, I think there's a lot of breweries that rest on their laurels. Uh, or who get into it and say, oh, I'm just going to make a widget. Mm -hmm. And beer is so much more personal than making a widget. Mm -hmm. And so when I'm looking for stories, I can say this personally, uh, when I'm looking for stories that I want to write about or breweries that I want to write about, it's not just somebody who is phoning it in. It's not just somebody who's punching a nine-to-five clock, but somebody who is uh, looking at uh, – what excites them? Yeah. Uh, you know, founders had that great line, you know, uh, we make what we want to drink and then we sell the rest. And it sounds like sort of a cliche, but so much of the brewing industry these days has that. Um, and yeah. I'm glad, I'm grateful for that as well. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. ultimately, I just want to drink lagers all day, but that's that's just me. But um, you're celebrating both lagers. Oh, sure. Great, I, uh, great lager breweries and brewers of exotic beers within these pages. Oh, exactly. And and the magazine, I think we, you know, we're 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 trying to make sure that anybody who picks it up, anybody who uh, reads the pages, is getting uh, a full spectrum of what's happening at this particular moment yeah. in beer. So yeah, that's nice. uh, so. Thanks nice. for that softball. That was uh, that was great. That was like a commercial for people who already subscribe, um, uh, as it were. So you asked me. Speaking of great beer magazines, uh, uh, you wrote a book with Jason and Todd, yeah. uh, who who work for a different magazine. Yes, and they're my 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 great friends. I know you look forward to having beers with them too. And I do. They're I I love the brothers. Yeah, yeah, and they've done a lot for for our industry, and mm -hmm. and you know we've been the official sponsor brewery of the Extreme Beer festival since you know uh i think since it started or since it's had a sponsor i'll say that for sure um and because uh, for us again remember we came from an era where it wasn't that cool to put exotic stuff so when we started finding other breweries brewing outside the reinhardt skibot or kind of pushing the boundaries we wanted to support that and and put a spotlight on it and you know i wrote a book 10 or 12 years ago called extreme brewing and when i saw how much the landscape change from when I did that to now. Um, I said, man, there's a lot of new home brewers and millennial drinkers that are so excited about this, as you can see when the Beer Advocates uh, Extreme Beer Fest sell out, and you see that demographic in the room, and their home brewers and beer drinkers were like, all right, and there's so many other breweries brewing out, you know, adventurous stuff, we're like, all right, it's the right time to do this, and I love the way the book came out. My favorite part, there's the recipes that are super approachable, partial grain recipes from, you know, Treehouse or shorts or other half and amazing we have to say augie at this point as well augie carton he'll great get, man he'll, he'll get he'll great, get great man great man i had a blast doing the project extreme brewing video with him um so exactly brewers like like that my favorite part of the book is we gave them all like a page to talk about their philosophy of extreme brewing and it 
they're all really, you know, you can see a lot of them put a lot of their hearts in, in, into those definitions. And it's really inspiring to, to read about each of those persons, you know, creative journey uh, in, in the book and, uh, and the, the brothers and their, the co-workers at, at Beer Advocate that helped us organize that book uh, deserve uh, massive accolades for their leadership on the project too. So it's just launching now called Project Extreme Brewing and also at dogfish.com. You can go see uh, the videos uh, we, we did with folks like Charlie Papazian and Augie and uh, some of the folks that were, were cool enough to, to be part of the project. As we start to wrap up, the you've done television. You had a, a, a nationally broadcast show uh, for a while. Uh, Fox was going to option a sitcom based on your life, you and Mariah's <laughs> life at some point. Yeah. I don't know. It's going to be fair is. and balanced. Uh huh. That's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, we're super excited about that. Sean Hannity plays you. Um, <laughs> a young Sean Hannity uh, uh, plays you, yeah. uh, which is weird. Um, you've written multiple books. So you guys have all of the, the restaurants and the hotel and the, or the motel and everything else that, that you mentioned before. Um, is there a dream project on the horizon? Is there a pie in the sky, the thing where you haven't quite gotten to it yet, but that would soothe your soul like huh no no i don't think so i guess maybe broadening our innovation capabilities at dogfish you know when i my hope is that this thing lives you know continues to live as this delaware locally owned thing beyond my going in every day my still my favorite days of work is coming up with a beer that's never been brewed before which i did with my coworkers last week um uh but I'm excited that we're putting in this multi-million dollar seven barrel fully automated R&D brewery and I'm excited that my coworker Amanda, her beer, beer uh, that Syracuse and Nera, a big stout with high fermented, high percentage of fermentables coming from Great Must, is now out in four packs. That was all her idea. So if anything, I'd love to flash forward 20 years from now. And on the next year's beer calendar, only one beer idea came from me because I know that would keep my heart and coming to work every every day if I get to innovate and release one new beer that came from me. But that five new beers in that year's beer calendar came from my amazing co-workers so that's what I'm most excited about bringing forward with our, our co-workers in the future I'm going to have to ask you to come back a second time because I have like five pages worth of notes that yeah. uh, that I can't get to but uh, Sam Calagione is the founder of Dogfish Head Brewery down in Delaware or up in Delaware yeah. depending or you know west or yeah. east in Delaware wherever you happen to be listening at, this, from. at this particular moment. <laughs> uh, he's written many books. You should buy them. Uh, his newest one is Project Extreme Brewing with the Alstrom Brothers of Beer Advocate. Uh, you can find them at dogfishhead.com. Just dogfish.com. Dogfish.com? Yeah. yeah, we were that early on the interwebs. Wow. Yeah. Who has dogfishhead.com? Uh, is that up for grabs? Can I get that and like make it I'm like Googling the old like, whitehouse.com? I'm, I'm Googling like, it right now. Yeah, that's it. Um, uh, check them out. Go down. It's a. It's always a great tour. Uh, try to break into the treehouse if you can. Really don't try to break into the no treehouse if you no go doubt. down there. And uh, Sam, thank you so much for sitting in a hotel room with me on a rainy Sunday when you could have been watching football. And, this is much uh, better. Yeah. <laughs> this is much better. Thank you, John, for being the great evangelist that you are. 
that's it. That was fun. Should we yeah. put our pants back on, or? Uh, or or we could just go down to the reception like Let's do this. It like and this. Just, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Check us out at beerandbrewing.com. If you have any questions, you can reach me on Twitter at John underscore Hall or send me an email with guests you'd like to see, suggestions on how we can make this better or better questions that I can ask at John Hall, H-O-L-L, at beerandbrewing.com. And we will be back with a brand new episode soon enough. Thanks so much. Start off 2018 right with a trip to Breckenridge, Colorado for the annual Big Beers, Belgians, and Barley Wines Festival. January 4th through 6th, meet top brewers from around the country, enjoy world-class skiing and snowboarding, attend special beer dinners, and taste some strong, inventive, and warming beers with fellow enthusiasts. Check out BigBeersFestival.com for more information. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.com.